Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Caitlin Harrigan. Dr. Harrigan is currently lecturer of psychology and linguistics at the College of William & Mary. She received her PhD in linguistics from the University of Maryland, and her research focuses on language acquisition, social cognition, and how language acquisition and social cognition interact. Professor Harrigan exposed me to linguistics when I was a student at the College of William & Mary. I took a couple of her classes and found her to be an absolutely fantastic professor. In this episode, in the first half, we talk about several different important concepts and distinctions in linguistics. For example, the different subfields of linguistics, how human languages are distinct from sophisticated animal communication systems. We talk about the distinction between idealects, dialects, and languages, Chomsky's notion of universal grammar and some other things. And then in the latter half, we hone in on Professor Harrigan's particular research that she's been doing on language acquisition. And specifically, we talk about the recent empirical work that she's done on children's acquisition of attitude verbs. She has devised many different creative experiments which serve to defend what she calls the syntactic bootstrapping hypothesis and we get into the weeds of the experiments that she's been running. It was a fire conversation, and I appreciate Professor Harrigan coming onto the show. So without further ado, I give you Professor Caitlin Harrigan. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Before we kind of hone in on your research mm-hmm. and talk about more general linguistic stuff, I thought we could just start with how did you get into linguistics? Yeah, this is a good question um, because it's sort of a, a random field to be in. It's like the kind of thing that people don't even know what linguistics is. People don't even realize that it's a, a, a sort of possible field of study, a science. Um, And so the way that I got into linguistics is sort of interesting. I was a foreign exchange student between when I finished high school and when I started college. So I knew I was going to college. I had applied. um, I had my admission deferred because I just really wanted to have this experience of sort of traveling and and sort of doing something else before I started college. And so um, I went to Switzerland and I don't know how much you know about the, the kind of language background of Switzerland, but they have four national languages. The region that I lived in uh, was a German-speaking region, and one of the families that I lived with um, had a daycare right in their home. So children would come to the home and, you know, sort of have these, you know, be taken care of or have uh, sort of little preschool, preschool-like activities. I was an 18-year-old who had never studied German. I'm going to a German high school. I'm struggling. It's super hard to learn a language as an adult. And then after a couple months there, I'm like feeling like I'm improving, I'm getting better, but it's this very, very hard work. This kid comes into the daycare and she is bilingual at home. She has an English and a French speaking parent. And she comes to this German speaking daycare and she just like kicks my butt. She's learning German way faster than I am. She's just, she's way better than me almost immediately. And I remember feeling like there's something going on here that's really deeply interesting to me. And I didn't know, of course, at the time that, yeah, that's a thing people can study, that there's like a biological reason why kids that age are learning different than, you know, me as an 18 year old. But it sort of um, 
I feel like it sort of planted a seed. Uh, so then I come back, I go to college. I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I took um, a psych class because I don't know why, because everyone says take a psych class. It's supposed to be interesting. So I take this psych class and we did a unit, like a day maybe on language acquisition. And I remembered this experience that I had with this kid at the daycare. And I was like, oh, this is a thing that people could study. There's something really interesting to unpack here. And so then ever since then, I... Um, yeah, I started taking a couple linguistics classes. I, um, I was at, um, a kind of small liberal arts school where we didn't have a major, but I basically put together a self-design major, did a bunch of courses, um, through different departments on campus and, um, and off campus. And, um, and yeah, so that's how I got started. Nice. That's a cool story. Yeah. It's, it's children are in a weird way, geniuses almost when it comes to language acquisition, it's that's so much exactly easier for right. them. Yeah, and I want to I want to drill in on a lot of the stuff related to that. But first, I guess just a few basic distinctions to kind of carve up the conceptual landscape. Uh-huh. What's the distinction between a language, a dialect, and an idiolect? Yeah, great question. So um, it sort of um, can be kind of complicated. Uh, a language we generally talk about as sort of a big umbrella of different. Um, versions of what we call mental grammars that people speak. And so across like a whole community of people who are able to speak and communicate with each other in a way that's mutually intelligible, we would call those people all speakers of the same language. A dialect is going to be groups of languages sort of inside of that bigger umbrella um, that have distinct differences from each other, but that clearly share some backgrounds that are generally mutually intelligible, we say. And then an idiolect is kind of the, the smallest thing and actually the easiest to define. So an idiolect is one individual person's what we call mental grammar. So one individual person's uh, sort of language capacity. So I have an idiolect, you have an idiolect, even though we clearly are speakers of the same dialect, the same language, we can communicate really easily. We don't notice differences between your English and my English. Literally what exists inside of your head is different than what exists inside of my head because yours is yours and mine is mine. Um, Right, so it's like my own personal private language, my own unique speech patterns, et cetera. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And if you think about it, um, I mean, I guess we'll probably get into some more language acquisition stuff as we are talking, but what yeah. you have built up as your own language system is different from what I've built up. I mean, you have to do that work every single individual as we come into the world. We're exposed to language, to sentences in our environment, and we're using those sentences as evidence about what kind of system this is. And we're taking those sentences and we're kind of working backwards to figure out what are the underlying rules, what are the generalizations. But the set of sentences that you get is different than the set of sentences that I've gotten. And so the evidence that you're using to build your grammar, your idiolect is different from the evidence that I've gotten. And so what this means is that even though sort of miraculously, maybe we kind of end up converging in a lot of ways, um, literally that building that's happening is different for you than it is for me. Right, right. And yeah, I want to talk about something that I think is related to that, the poverty of the stimulus and how that kind of gives evidence towards Chomsky's innate grammar thesis. But before we get there, it's also worth stating that when it comes to the mutual intelligibility test, there's that's, there's often a vague boundary there where you'll have different dialects within one language, which are kind of mutually intelligible. You know, I'll meet someone from a completely different part of the United States than I'm from, and I struggle understanding them. So it's kind of uh, not a fine line, I would say. Is that fair? 
Yeah, I, I think it's exactly um, a fuzzy line, sort of the way you describe. This is something I struggle with a lot when I'm teaching introductory linguistics because people want to know, you know, what is the difference between sort of a language boundary versus a dialect boundary? And right. we generally see something like, yes, if it's mutually intelligible, we count that as, you know, maybe two dialects of the same language. And if it's not, we say it's two different languages. But what does it really mean to be mutually intelligible? Do you have to understand 30% of the speech, 70% of the speech? So um, I think for linguists, um, in a lot of ways, we sort of don't care whether something is a language difference or a dialect difference, because the different dimensions upon which language can vary are so diverse. And so it's not like you have this hard cutoff of like you have exactly this much in common, therefore you count as the same dialect. Because again, if you take any two individual speech, um, there are going to be many different possible ways that they could vary. And so there's just no way, because language is such a complex system, there's no way to kind of make those lines clear. So we kind of say as a rough estimate, you know, mutually intelligible. For us, the difference between language and dialect is often... Um, only in service of giving some estimate to other linguists about how much variation we're collapsing over. So any language system that you're describing, you're always collapsing over variation. So even if you're describing a really, really specific dialect, what you're doing is you're you're aggregating over the, the idiolects, the mental grammars of multiple speakers within that that dialect. And so you're always making some generalizations over individuals. Um, and so the question about language versus dialect is really just um, how much variation are you collapsing over? When we say dialect, we tend to mean less. When we say language, we tend to mean we're collapsing over more. But you're exactly right that there's not really a um, there's not really like a an exact litmus test for is this a language difference versus a dialect difference? Um, of course, yeah. it also gets complicated because we use in the world words like language and dialect to mean something kind of political sometimes. So we tend to say that something is a language if it has a country behind it. And we tend to say that things are dialects, either if they are kind of within the same country or if they are sometimes uh, sort of spoken by marginalized people. Um, and I can give you a couple of oh. examples of that. So one example of that is if we're thinking about Scandinavian countries. So Swedish, yeah. Norwegian, Danish are all basically mutually intelligible. You can take a Swedish speaker and a Danish speaker, and they're going to be able to understand a lot of what um, what's happening. They could have a conversation. But nobody ever talks about those um, sort of in uh, lay people's terms um, as being two dialects of the same language. Mm -hmm. As we would want to say two dialects of the same language because they're mutually intelligible, more or less. So sometimes people don't divide up particular languages according to the mutual intelligibility te test. They do it for political reasons. Or That's, exactly, other reasons. Right. That's yeah. exactly right. And so, of course, as linguists, we don't care about who has a country and who doesn't have a country. Um, <laughs> right. We're interested in describing language as a, a human cognitive system. But I think sometimes people can get very lured by this idea of something being a dialect when it is like a, I don't know, almost like a shoot off version of of, of a more... Um, standardly recognized language. So we talk about a lot of the different dialects in, you know, uh, the U.S. as being kind of dialects and, and standard English as being kind of the, I don't know, the real language. But actually, we would just say all of those are kind of under one and one language umbrella, and they're all dialects of that same language. Well, that's a, that gets to my next question, because another stereotype that I had in my head with respect to dialects is that some are privileged in a sense. Mm -hmm. But in reality, 
all dialects are equally valid in some sense. Mm -hmm. And I think this might get to the distinction between prescriptive and descriptive grammar. So Mm -hmm. maybe you could just elaborate a little bit there. Sure. Um, So you're absolutely right that when we look at kind of the social implications of language and of the different kind of language that, you know, any individual speaks, we see that there are some people who have a language that is, um, like you say, more privileged. So, you know, the version of English that I happen to speak because of my background as a person in this country, you know, being white, being sort of middle class, being, you know, from sort of the Northeast region, I just happen to have learned a dialect that is pretty close to what we consider to be the standard language in the United States. There's nothing about my dialect that makes it inherently better or more systematic or more rule governed. It's not scientifically any better than any kind of other dialect that we could look at. So some examples are things like Southern English. People tend to see that as kind of non-standard. People tend to think of that as having less um, less validity in terms of its ability to express ideas when really when we're talking about language in this kind of scientific cognitive system way, all of the idiolects that anyone builds, everyone's mental grammar is equally rule governed, equally systematic, equally valid. They have all of the basic parts of a human language regardless of how they're kind of seen um, in society's eyes. And so I think one of the really important things um, that we try to do as linguists is sort of educate people to this, that when we hear dialects like African-American vernacular English, um, these dialects have features that people think of as being worse. So things like double negatives or habitual B. So they can say things like, you know, Um, I'd be taking the bus to school. People hear that as being kind of, you know, oh, it sounds uneducated. It sounds worse than my version of English. But in reality, it's just a different kind of grammatical feature. And scientifically, it's not any any worse, any less complex, any less uh, valid. Yeah. Yeah. That I feel like is such an important linguistic truth that can have really good societal and political consequences because you're not immediately judging someone's intellect based upon the particular um dialect that they happen to be speaking. And I grew up with those stereotypes in my head, too, for whatever reason, just because I'm a product of society. Yeah, I mean, we all do. It's one of the things that I work really hard on, especially in my introductory class. Um, I I see that as being a really important part of my job to, to kind of convey that truth to all of these students that cycle through my class that that just have never thought about language in that way and that are conditioned to think that these versions of English are worse or that they say something exactly like you say about someone's intelligence or someone's intellect. And, you know, we we're all kind of conditioned to have these biases about people's language. So it's not um, it's not like individuals trying to be hateful. It's just that that's that's the narrative that we're exposed to. And so what we can do is we can take data, we can take science and we can show them, you know, here are all the ways that we see all of these different various languages, regardless of their kind of status in society, being equally complex, being equally rule governed. Sometimes we show these cool cases where, you know, kind of marginalized dialect like African-American vernacular English has elements of complexity that we don't see in my my own version of English. Um, It isn't that it's less complex. It's just that it has elements of complexity that differ. Right, right. Okay, a few more uh, general questions, Mm -hmm. and then we'll hone in on your particular research. So one, most people, to my understanding, won't say that other animal communication systems count as languages, but other animals certainly have some sophisticated communication systems. So I guess Mm -hmm. the question is, what features 
of human language make it distinct in such a way that other animals don't have language? And I think this gets to Hockett's design features. Yes, exactly. Um, this is a great question. And this is one of the things, again, that comes up over and over in our introductory classes. And one of the kind of big things that we want all students to leave a sort of intro linguistics class um, with some background in. Animal communication systems are also complex. Um, and so when we say that human language is different, we're not saying it in a kind of value judgment way. We're not saying it's better than other species. We're not saying that it makes humans better. We're just saying that it has literally different properties. And the different properties that we see are these two, and they exactly come from Hockett's design features. Um, the first one is displacement. So human language has the capacity to talk about, to refer to, to communicate ideas about things outside of the here and now. So we can see that in kind of small ways. I can say, uh, you know, there's a hurricane on campus today or whatever. Campus is closed. I'm talking about, you know, the William and Mary campus that's a couple miles from my house, even though I'm here. I can't see that. I can't access it directly, but I can refer to it. We can also do this in a little more complex way. We can talk about the past. I can say, you know, yesterday I taught my seminar. I'm talking about the past. I can talk about the future. You know, Monday I, you know, campus will open again or whatever. Um, we can do this in even more complex ways than this, though. We can talk about fantasy ideas. We can talk about um, things that could never exist. I can talk about unicorns or, uh, you know, the whole fantasy genre is kind of predicated on this ability that language has to talk about things outside of the here and now. I can create this entire universe in my head and then I can put uh, sound waves together in such a way that I communicate this idea that I've had, this whole complex universe that I've created to you and you can kind of recreate this idea in your head. Uh, right. Other animal communication systems don't have that property. Other animal communication systems seem to have evolved for the purpose of communication. They seem to do things that help the species survive. Human language can also communicate, obviously, and also perhaps evolved in part to be able to do that. But it seems to have this kind of separate function that allows us to do things way outside of just communicating information for survival. Well, How another just quickly survive, right? Yeah, another question there is yeah, that ability of displacement could that potentially have an evolutionary function as well? Like this ability to craft narratives and stories that don't match up with physical reality can actually unite us in different ways and help us survive as a species. So that might have a more indirect evolutionary function or something like that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think it's just a different kind of a different kind of function. And yeah, and I absolutely don't mean to say that there's no um, there's no evolutionary function of yeah, yeah. The capacity of language to do that, but but it's different than communicating like honeybees do about where food is specifically. It does not further our species ability to survive in the moment the mm -hmm. way a lot of other animal communication systems seem to be um seem to have developed in service of but i think um you're right it's not an accident maybe that humans are the only species that have a communication system that has this function and we're also the only species that has built these entire you know, complex cultures that solve complex math problems and have architecture and and have sort of built the world to be the way that it is. Uh, so I absolutely think that that the ability that language has to communicate about things outside of the here and now is related to a lot of the different ways that we see humans looking different from other species. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And then the other one would be recursivity. Is that right? Or productivity? It's related to recursivity, but we, we tend to call this something like productivity or sometimes generativity. Mm-hmm. And what this means is that human language is built out of a finite number of parts. So if you think about what is involved in your language and you break it down to its tiniest little parts, it's something like 35 sounds, just individual discrete sounds. Human language is made up of these discrete sounds and those sounds combine in a systematic rule governed way. So for example, you can take the sound p in English like pot and you can combine it with the l sound like lost and you can make this combination pl. Right. Notice, though, that we cannot take the sound like th and combine that with the l sound. Fl doesn't feel like a good combination in English. One of those is allowed. The other one is disallowed. So the way that the sounds combine is rule governed, is systematic. These sounds combine and they make bigger things like words and those words combine and make bigger things like sentences. And so this idea of a system that is built out of discrete pieces that are finite, that are combining via rules at these different levels from sounds all the way up to sentences um, and creating unlimited output. We call that being a discrete combinatorial system, discrete pieces combining in rule governed ways and critically here for human language being productive or generative in the sense of being able to create unlimited outputs. From those 35 sounds, you could make an unlimited number of different possible sentences. The reason that we can do that is because of exactly what you said, recursion. Recursion is the type of rule that allows um, infinite reapplication of the same rule over and over. So we can take a, a language unit like a sentence. We can say, you know, it's raining, for example. And I can take that sentence and I can put it inside of a bigger sentence. I can say Kate thinks that it's raining. Mm-hmm. Now I have that unit again sentence and I can again take that sentence and I can apply the same rule. I can say Cody heard that Kate thinks that it's raining. And for however many times we could keep doing this, you're to always up with exactly to infinity. You're always ending up with this output that's a sentence and you know that your rules can take a sentence as its input. And so you just keep making <laughs> more and more and more longer and longer sentences. And so that's what human language has that that is special. This productivity, this generativity that is based in this type of rule that is recursive. No other other species has rules that do that. Right. So in a way, people grossly underestimate just how creative they are, because the majority of the sentences that they're articulating have never been spoken before in the entirety history, in the entire history of humanity. That's exactly right. Yeah. We, in fact, see, I have just started using this as an example in some of my classes. But to illustrate this point, we see sometimes these online communities, Facebook groups, or the example that I used is like a Reddit page that is something like, you know, sentences that have never been said and you can go in there and people submit these just totally bizarre sentences that they come across in their lives that someone ends up saying that have probably never been said before and sometimes they're really funny but we hear them and we understand them and it kind of illustrates this idea that you can create an unlimited number of things and lots of brand brand new things from these really finite pieces 35 sounds Right. And that just that discrete combinatorial picture of language is analogous to the scientific picture of physical reality in many different respects. Right. Because there you just have different physical atoms combining in a way and different sciences studying physical reality at different levels. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess I have never thought about it in that 
in that kind of directly compared way. But yeah, I think that's right, that that is um, that that's going to be a similar kind of underlying property that other kinds of physical realities have. Yeah. Yeah. This is a good segue into kind of just articulating the different subfields of microlinguistics and the different levels at which you can study language. So just making the distinction between phonology, morphology, syntax, semantics. So I guess maybe we can start from the bottom up. Phonology, you already mentioned, that's just the study of different sounds in a nutshell. Yeah, so there's sort of two different pieces at that lowest level. There's phonetics and phonology. Phonetics Mm. is going to be about the physical acoustic properties of sounds. So literally looking at the acoustic signal, what are the actual properties that we see acoustically that go along with the different kinds of sounds that languages can have. And phonetics is all about just describing what we see um, at that kind of lowest level. So you could continue to describe the acoustic signal in more and more and more detail for your entire life. I mean, as our tools became more become more sophisticated, um, you could just continue to describe basically that acoustic signal in more and more detail. Phonology is a little bit different. Phonology is taking that information and thinking about how does that um, manifest in the world's languages. I like to talk about phonology as creating categories out of chaos. So if you think about what's in the acoustic signal, again, it's just what is really an unlimited amount of different kind of acoustic variation that you could see. Phonology comes in and it says, okay, the human brain cannot deal with all of this variation, all of this unlimited amount of chaos and acoustic messiness and variation. And it says, let's break up this acoustic space into meaningful categories so that we understand how to process it so that we can turn it into something like 35 sounds in English or however many are going to exist in each language, which is going to be around that same amount. Fun fact there. I looked that up. Morari as a language, apparently that has the fewest number of sounds at around nine. What? I was so stunned by that. I did not know that. That's fascinating. I mean, can you imagine, though, nine sounds and you can combine them in an unlimited number of ways? I mean, it just even now, you know, I've been thinking about language and linguistics every day for at least, you know, 10 years. And and I still sometimes am surprised by these facts. It just doesn't seem like we should be able to do that. I know. It's crazy. It is crazy. Um. Right. So, okay. Then the next level would be morphology. Is that right? The next level we say is morphology. So morphology is about taking these sound categories that you have um, and uh, turning those into into sort of chunks of sounds that are bigger and that um, convey some kind of consistent meaning. So that's going to be like your basic words that can't be broken down anymore, something like talk in its smallest part made up of sounds, but that's kind of a consistent unit that conveys some some meaning. Um, You also have morphemes that are what we call uh, bound morphemes. So these are going to be things like your prefixes and your suffixes, things that can't exist on their own, but that get attached to these different kind of root words. So things like, you know, your plural S sound or your, you know, re as a a prefix to words, that kind of thing. Even though it's not a word, it has consistent meaning that it's always... um, um, contributing every time it shows up anywhere. Of course, right, morphemes, so morphine, a morphine isn't necessarily a word, but there can be morphemes, sound units that have meaning, which can only have meaning when bound to a different word, like the plural S. Yeah, that's right. It's not even that they only have meaning. It's just that they can only be used when they're when they're bound to something. I mean, if I give you, you know, this unit un, 
even though you don't use that on its own, you kind of know, even when you hear it in isolation, you know what its meaning is that it would contribute. But yeah, it only it only kind of shows up in the linguistic signal when it's attached to other things. You can compare that to something like, you know, if I give you the sound, um, you know, puh, like pot, um, when you just hear that puh in isolation, it, um, it it doesn't have any meaning on its own compared to something like un. Mm-hmm. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, And so then, of course, morphemes combine to make words. So some morphemes are also words on their own, but we can also start combining different morphemes in ways that is, again, systematic, again, rule-governed, and is going to create these uh, sort of complex or multimorphemic words. So we can say things like, you know, unhappiness, which is going to be the combination of this root happy with this prefix un and this suffix ness. And here's where the system starts to get actually pretty powerful. You've got to memorize the sounds. To some extent, you've got to memorize the morphemes as well. They're not kind of generated. But once you start to get to this word level, that's where we're really seeing this generativity that language provides. You can just memorize happy. You can Mm -hmm. also memorize un and ness separately from that. But you don't have to then also memorize unhappiness as its own unit. Because when you need to create that, you have all the pieces that you need. And the idea here is that you're doing something productive. So you don't right. have to memorize it because you can literally generate it on the spot. Right. Okay. So then the next level up. So, so you have different morphemes co- uh, combining together to create more complex words. Yep. And then you have different words combining together to create sentences. And now we're at the level of syntax. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so sort of as you work your way up in the system, things become less memorized, stored, and more generated. Um, And so sentences, the idea is you're not memorizing anything at the sentence level, you're generating all of it, which is why it's um, possible to create brand new sentences on the spot and also um, understand brand new sentences that you've never heard before because your entire um, sort of language system at that level is just all about generation, not about memorization. Right. I actually did this really cool activity um, just last week in my intro class that's brand new that I just that I um, just created last week that I just want to tell you about really quickly that's related to this, which is um, basically making this point that we cannot possibly be memorizing things at the sentence level. And so what we did was we created this little toy language. We called it Finglish. So like maybe fake English. And we said that Finglish has uh, 100 nouns. No, sorry. A thousand nouns. A hundred verbs. And you can make sentences that are either two words, so like I walked, or sentences that are three words, I walked the dog. We do a little calculation and we figure out, okay, what is the total number of words that you could create in this language? And then we say, let's take our learner, let's take a baby. Let's say our baby is a super good learner and she can memorize one sentence per second for 12 hours of her life. We figure out how long is it gonna take her to learn the language if she's learning it sentence by sentence, if she has to memorize every sentence. For two and three word sentences in a language of this size, it's going to take her about six and a half years. So, okay, seems long, but like not so bad, right? Yeah. Then we say, let's make one little adjustment to our language. Let's give ourselves 10 adjectives. And let's say that adjectives can go uh, before either noun that comes sort of at the beginning or at the end in those subject or object positions. Now let's think about how many five word sentences we can make. So like, you know, small children eat red tomatoes, sentences like that. Then we calculate how many sentences we can make now, and it's a lot, right? It's massive. Then we calculate how long it's going to take our baby to learn sentences 
or learn this language if she's memorizing sentences at that rate. And now it's like 640 years. <laughs> so, that, so that proves that you can't be learning it at the sentence level? That's exactly right. You have to be learning something that is more abstract and you're generating sentences because right. you absolutely could not learn a language, even a teeny, teeny, tiny language that that um, had as many possible sentences as as we see human language has. Right. Um, you just couldn't you couldn't memorize it. I mean, you you first of all, <laughs> kids aren't even alive that long, obviously. Second of all, you <laughs> couldn't memorize it that rate. And third of all, it requires that you're hearing sentences at that rate, that you're hearing sentences, you know, all the different possible sentences at one sentence per second and you memorize. I mean, obviously it's it's impossible. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, th I think this might be a nice little segue into the Chomsky stuff I wanted mm -hmm. to talk about, but just to uh, put a bow on the different kinds of microlinguistics. So then mm -hmm. you see, so yeah, you have syntactic, syntax, then you have semantics, the study of meaning and pragmatics, the study of language in use. Yes. In, in language, is that right? That's exactly right. So semantics is about what things mean. You know, a sound chunk dog refers to the set of things in the world that have the properties that, you know, make it a dog. Um, and pragmatics is is um, sort of slippery. Pragmatics is about how language is used. So, um, for example, if I say um, in a classroom full of students like, oh, the trash is really full today or something like that. It's just sort of a random comment. I'm literally probably talking about the trash. Who knows why I'm making conversation. Mm -hmm. If I come up to my house and I say to my husband, the trash is looking really full. Now you can imagine <laughs> this means something a little bit different. What I'm actually right. trying to convey here is probably a, a sort of indirect command to him about what I would like him to do. So literally exactly the same sentence, but we see that its meaning, its intended meaning is different across different contexts. That's the kind of stuff that pragmatics is is all about. Right, right, exactly. So, okay, Chomsky. You have mm -hmm. this guy named Chomsky comes along like mid 20th century. Yep. To my understanding, he wants to make a sharp distinction between syntax and semantics, right? One. So he has this famous quote: "Colorless, gre colorless green ideas sleep furiously." Yeah. So right. syntactically, that's completely legitimate, but mm -hmm. semantically, it doesn't have any meaning whatsoever. But more generally. My understanding is that he has this innateness hypothesis where he thinks that humans are born with equipped with this universal uh, grammar. Mm -hmm. And there are many different things that he points to. Oh, and it's also my understanding. This was revolutionary for so many different reasons, but also him postulating these kind of internal representations partially gave rise to cognitive science. Yeah, That's yeah. My understanding. That's a good characterization. Yeah. But right, so then there, there are different facts that on the face of it speak immediately in favor of this innateness hypothesis. One is the poverty of the stimulus, which yeah. we already touched upon. Another, I think, is the fact that there are these language universals. Mm -hmm. Children seem to acquire language at the same time across different cultures That's around right. the world. So I guess first, what is the innateness hypothesis and what is the poverty of the stimulus idea that uh, acts as evidence for it? Yeah, this is a great question. I think you did a really good job of characterizing what the innateness hypothesis is. And you're absolutely right that this comes from Chomsky around the 50s and that this was very revolutionary at the time. People had absolutely not thought of language in this way, I think, until um, until Chomsky's innateness hypothesis. The basic idea here is that 
When we look at the actual input that kids get and we study it deeply and we think about what it would take to learn these abstract rules of one's language, we see that even in the best case scenario, even for a kid that's getting totally good, solid, rich and varied and um, uh, sort of a lot of language input, that they're just not getting the relevant information that they would need to be able to figure out what the rules of their language are. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, Chomsky says, you can't learn from the input alone. There must be something else that is guiding you towards figuring out how your language is going to look. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we call that is universal grammar. I think that that people absolutely, certainly historically, but even now differ in the field in terms of um, how comfortable they are ascribing things to the learner in this innate way. I think most people now feel like there has to be something that's innate. Obviously, language is also learned. You learn whatever language you're exposed to. I'm an English speaker because that's what my parents spoke in my household growing up. Um, and where we differ now is kind of where people fall in this spectrum um, in terms of how much we want to attribute to the biology, to the learner. For me, it seems like um, we don't want to build things in to the learner just because. But there are a lot of situations where it seems like we look cross-linguistically and we see some kind of property that shows up in every single language. Right. And that is a good candidate for something that we can say, it seems like it's built in. And so all of the things that we're saying we think are built in, that we think that the kid comes to the table with, like I sometimes talk about this in my language acquisition class, is kind of like standard issue baby. Like you come into the world and here are the things you already know or expect to be true about your language. And that is what you need to be able to use the input that you're getting, which is impoverished, it's crappy, to be able to use that input in a way that helps you figure out the rules of your language. Right. And there is some minimum level of linguistic stimuli that you need to be exposed to in order to learn the language. It's not like you can just be born on a desert island and become a fluent English speaker. And I mean, that actually gets into your research and how social cognitive development dovetails with language acquisition. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Nobody is saying even like the strongest innateness hypothesis people are not saying you don't need input. We can tell that for lots of reasons, one of which is if kids aren't exposed to language, they don't learn it. Another one is if language were somehow biological in the strongest sense, like the facts about language were biological, we would either all speak the same language or the (laughs) language that you learned would be tied to your genetics. But like I'm not an English speaker because my you know, because of my genetics specifically, I'm an English speaker because I was exposed to it. So yeah, it's definitely, you know, I kind of characterize the whole field of, of language acquisition as being about um, what is it that we need to build in and what is it that has to come from the input and how do those things connect to each other? Um, mm-hmm. How is it that you're using these innate, um, either like innate knowledge of language or innate um, learning mechanisms to be able to encode the input in a meaningful way that helps you build up that system. So it's about this this relationship between those two, um, I sometimes call them like sources of information, your biology and your input. Right, right. Has there been increasing resistance to Chomsky in the literature recently? I forget what paper this is from, but here's just a quote. It says, a growing number of people believe that the rule-bound approaches will never work and that Chomsky has taken us all on the wrong track. Even the faithful have backed off from their most extreme early claims putting more and more of the power of grammar out of the universal grammar, the rule set, and back into the lexicon. Words themselves are carrying more and more weight. 
blurring the distinction between semantics and syntax, which Chomsky wished to keep completely separate. Is that right? I, I do think that people um, people have taken what Chomsky has said and moved in a direction of um, sort of updating that. I don't, I mean, I think like the kernel of what he said, a lot of us still believe to be basically right. But like, of course, work that, you know, was proposed or ideas that were proposed 70 years ago. It's like, we just know a lot more now. We we have a lot more. So one example of this is like, we have a lot more um, sort of, uh, you know, computational tools at our disposal that really help us kind of figure out, okay, we can model the learning in this in this sort of computational way that helps us figure out um, exactly how it is that that this kernel of what Chomsky said might actually be implemented. But yeah, I mean, I think people yeah. are in the field in terms of how much they think. My, my sense of it is not that most of the field feels like he took us way off track, but certainly it's the case that people have um, updated our model uh, based on newer research that, that has come out since he first proposed these ideas in the 50s. Yeah. Well, yeah, one thought I had when I was reading your work is that it's, I don't want to say anti-Chomskyan, but it, it at least it serves to blur the, the distinction between syntax and semantics in a way, because partially what you demonstrate, which we'll get into, is that children use different syntactic features to understand the semantics of particular attitude verbs. Yeah, so, I mean, I think, okay, so like one thing we should maybe be clear on, I don't think Chomsky yeah, yeah. was saying that syntax and semantics aren't related to each other, only that when we talk about kind of grammaticality in this sense of what it is that your language system will allow you to generate, that that mm. is structure-based and not meaning-based. Um, but I think, um, okay. I think, right, so that's why we can say things like colorless green ideas sleep furiously. I have never read his work as being... Um, inconsistent with this idea of syntax and semantics being related at some level, just that, just that, yeah, what it is that can and can't be generated is about structure more than about meaning. Oh, okay. Yeah, that helps. That helps. That definitely helps. All right. Uh, so, even, yeah, even if we think about just sort of like a basic sentence, like, um, you know, John slept, it's like your grammaticality knows that sleep only wants one argument. Um, John slept is fine, but John slept Mary is not good. John slept the bed, not good. And so even there, it's kind of like your grammaticality, your your language system that you're using knows something about, uh, about um, sleep in this kind of deep way that I think we would say is related indirectly to meaning. So part of why sleep has that particular distribution, why it allows for some kinds of structures and not others, in this case, one argument versus two arguments, uh, part of the reason that it allows that probably is because the meaning of sleep is inconsistent with it being a two-party event. Right. But it's not only about that. If we take um, an example like eat versus devour, they kind of mean something similar. And so if syntax were completely related to semantics, we would maybe expect them to have the same kind of distributional facts. And yet we see that they differ. So with a verb like eat, you can have uh, a subject and an object. We can say Kate ate the sandwich, but we can also just say Kate ate. Is totally fine on its own. Devour, again, is referring to a really, really similar event in the world. And we can say Kate devoured the sandwich, but there we don't like Kate devoured. Right. And so, again, you can see sometimes that the syntactic distribution of something is 
it's kind of connected to the meaning. And that's going to be what we talk about with my work. But it's not like this one to one mapping. It's not like the semantics completely predicts the exact distribution of words in in the sense that they're one and the same. Right. OK. OK. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Right. So I was mischaracterizing Chomsky by saying that he wants to keep these things completely separate. And at the same time, you're not saying that there's like a one to one mapping between the two. That's right. So I think he's recognizing that they're separate systems, but also it it feels like um, Chomsky and people since then have also acknowledged that they are related in some way. And I think people probably differ in terms of how strongly they think that they're related. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So let's get into your work. OK. So you focus on language acquisition and this is just from the research statement that you sent me and yeah. from reading it. And um, in particular, how different uh, domains of cognitive development interact. And the particular domain that you're focused on is language acquisition and social cognitive development. Yeah. So I guess one preliminary question would be, what are some obvious connections between language acquisition and social cognitive development, just for someone entering the territory here? Yes, this is a, a really good starting point. So language acquisition is deeply tied in its most fundamental way to our species development uh, socially. I think we can feel this even from something you said um, you know, a few minutes ago about kind of the evolutionary function of language and the evolutionary function of these language properties like displacement that allow us to kind of build culture, for example. But the way that we can see that in a kind of developmental sense is that you cannot learn language if you don't have some kind of automatic assumption about other individuals of your species being potential conversation partners, being social beings, having information that they are potentially conveying to you. So when a parent says something like, oh, this is a doggy, look at the doggy. The kid is assuming that those particular sound waves are carrying some kind of meaning, that there is something there for her to be understanding at all, that they're referring to something in the world. When the same baby hears, for example, the sound of this lawnmower that's going outside of my house right now, or my dog snoring, or my refrigerator, the baby is not assuming that those sound waves carry meaning. And so the baby seems to be treating human speech as a really special kind of auditory input, when if we think about things in a completely neutral way, there's no way for her to know that. Why is she trying to understand uh, words and meaning in human language, but not other kinds of, of auditory stimuli? Because yeah. there's some kind of social instinct that, that drives the baby towards learning language at all. A related question there, or at least I think it's related, isn't it true that when you're born, a baby can hear or is exposed to many different phonemes which aren't a part of their language and then as they start to learn their language they actually become increasingly deaf yeah deaf to different phonemes that aren't a part of their language yeah that's exactly that's right when we look at um little little babies like from the day that they're born they are sensitive to the differences between any two given sounds that are present and meaningful in any of the world's languages. These are obviously sounds the baby has never heard before because she has just been born, and yet the baby can recognize them as two distinct sounds. 
As the baby develops, she starts to get better at figuring out what kind of sounds are going to be important and meaningful for her particular language. And then she gets better at doing what I kind of think of as filtering out of the input. Um, One of the things that I think is really, really important for thinking about language acquisition at all is is this concept of input versus encoding. Mm Input is like the literal sound waves that you hear. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the same if we look at, you know, a one day old versus a 12 month old versus a five year old versus an adult. It's like you're getting these sound waves that represent your language. Encoding is what you do with that input. Encoding is what it is that you're taking from that input. And what we see is that the the baby's ability to encode that language input changes over the course of her development. So if you look at a, a one day old, the baby is encoding in that case, a lot more information from that acoustic signal about the sounds. Whereas you get to a 12-month-old, what they've done here is they've gotten better at figuring out which of these sounds do I need to encode because they're potentially meaningful to my language and which ones should I ignore? Which ones are just part of, you know, random acoustic variation in the signal that is not important for me? Um, And so people talk about this a lot of times as getting worse as this kind of sad fact about humans that makes us bad at learning second languages, which is true. (laughs) But also it's it's this really cool example of your brain specializing for the language that it is going to need to use. Your brain is like evolving kind of in this micro way that that um, helps it process your language more efficiently. So like your language or your brain is fine tuned to be a processing brain for English. Um, and that makes it harder to learn other languages, harder to distinguish sounds. But it means that you um, you can process English really, really well. And that's ultimately a really good thing. Right, you're honing in on the particular sounds. Your brain is honing in on the particular sounds which are relevant to your language. Yeah. Another, another question I had here, just while we're on this, is um, how how babies are able to parse this continuous sound stream because ultimately it's just this continuous audio sound stream. Yeah. How are you able? And I always I always have this realization when I hear other languages that I'm not competent in. I always have the thought. It doesn't sound like there are distinct words. It just sounds yeah. like a continuous stream. But then I realized that the same thing is true with English. I've just developed the ability to parse out the sound stream into distinct words and distinct sentences. And is this another place where social cues play a role in language acquisition? Is My understanding is that babies will sometimes use stress mm-hmm. as a way to parse that sound stream. Yeah, this is a great question. It's true. And this is exactly the kind of um, exercise that I like to do when I'm making this point in classes is when you hear speech in another language, it really strikes you how how continuous it is. It's really hard to tell what any of the given words are in that sentence stream, in that speech stream. When we hear our own language, we we feel like the sounds are distinct sound, distinct words with actual space with actual boundaries, but they're in fact not. It's your brain that is um, able to process your language that's kind of putting those spaces in, that's allowing you to hear this continuous stream as distinct individual words, units. Um, We think that there, and so yeah, this is a great point about uh, this being a massive challenge for the kid learning her language. It's like, how do you even know that there are words in there at all when all you're hearing is a continuous speech stream? Um, I think this is a really good example of where we think something like universal grammar might be helpful. So, (laughs) sorry, that was my dog. (laughs) All you ever hear is this continuous speech stream. So like the refrigerator or like the lawnmower, and you have no reason to assume that there is 
some kind of structure underneath that, that it's divisible into these parts, then how would you ever start to figure out what those parts are? So one example of the kind of thing that we might want to build into universal grammar is something like um, there are words. There are going to be these discrete parts within this speech stream. Look for those words. Um, and then the baby can use a bunch of different kinds of tools um, to help her figure out where those actual boundaries are. But the idea to look for boundaries at all, you absolutely could not figure that out just by hearing language because there are no boundaries. And so that has to be something that you come in expecting. And that's, in fact, something we see in every language, that we have these boundaries. And so it's like perfect candidate for being a part of universal grammar. Look for words, look for pieces, look for structure. So like you say, lots of different tools that the baby could learn to figure out where these boundaries are. One of them could be social cues. So sometimes parents do this thing where they say words in isolation. You're like, dog, 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 or like, you see the dog? And so the baby is kind of getting this chunk on its own. Right. We don't see that enough to explain how the baby could learn all of her words. And there's going to be some words that are never going to be spoken that way, like the. You're never just going to hear the on its own. Look, it's a the. It's the. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that can be a good candidate for kind of helping you get your foot in the door. You're like, oh, that one's a chunk. Okay, I can kind of keep track of that. And then when I hear it in a speech stream, I know that that chunk is a chunk and it gives me evidence about stuff at the boundaries of that chunk. So that's one way. Social cues, kind of hearing hearing words sometimes, occasionally in isolation. Um, right. Another two ways that come to mind, the second one is exactly like you said, stress. Um, it seems to be the case that babies like this idea to look for words at all, also have some kind of um, constraint built in about stress properties of words. So they seem to know something like, every word is going to have one main stress. And so you can imagine if you get this long stream of sounds and you're kind of looking for those stressed syllables, then that kind of gives you some indication of how many words you have in that speech stream of perhaps where some of the boundaries are. So for example, if you hear, you know, three stressed syllables in a row, you know that that middle one must be its own word. Uh, and therefore, you know something about some of the boundaries in your speech stream. Right. Okay. The third kind of way is a little bit more computationally. And what that is, is that um, babies are really sensitive to what we call transitional probabilities. So when you give babies a stream of speech uh, in, for example, an artificial language with like six words, that's the kind of classic way that this has been done. This is a 1996 study by Saffron Aslan and Newport, super um, sort of foundational study in the field. What they basically find is that when you take away all of the what we call prosodic cues, so all of the stress information, all of the sort of rising and falling pitch that we get in a speech stream, and you just give them the syllables of these six words kind of repeating in different orders uh, over and over for two minutes, they're then able to distinguish afterwards what they call whole words, so things that have always occurred together in that speech stream, from nonce words, so things that are presented to the baby in a different kind of order, syllable order, than they heard in the speech stream, or even part words, so things that, that have like, you know, two syllables that match a word, but one of them that doesn't match, something like that. Basically, what babies are doing in these cases is that they are um, hearing all of the syllables all played in a row, and they're sensitive to how likely any two syllables are to occur next to each other. And things that are more likely to occur next to each other, they recognize, oh, that might be word internal. Things that are less likely to occur next to each other, they, they recognize, oh, that must be a word boundary. 
So it's a kind of linguistic pattern recognition. It's exactly pattern recognition. Yep. And and pattern recognition, but also um, kind of keeping track of those patterns in a probabilistic way that is surprisingly sophisticated. Um, one of the things that people have sort of criticized about this type of study, um, because when they initially did this study, they, they really um, were sort of claiming, look, the baby has such good, strong learning mechanisms. Maybe we don't need to build anything in. Maybe she doesn't need universal grammar. Um, and so one of the things people criticized about that argument is, okay, but that's a really tiny language. How well is that going to translate to real world speech? Um, and then you see this kind of interesting discussion in the literature between this guy, Charles Yang, who's a computational language acquisitionist, and sort of the original authors of this study where he is, um, he's basically showing using modeling that if you, if you feed a model real speech, using transitional probabilities alone is not, not enough to help you really accurately figure out where the words are. But if you add in this one constraint about look for main stress and then try to figure out transitional probabilities, the model does much, much better. So babies are using, you know, pattern tracking. Babies are using these kind of innate constraints about things like stress and words existing at all. And maybe some social cues looking at what people are referring to, kind of hearing words in isolation, paying attention to people's intentions while they're naming and kind of all of that built in together and being deployed by the baby is um, is what allows her to, to take this messy, messy speech stream and um, kind of overlay word boundaries on it. Wow. It's insane how sophisticated infant cognition is when you put it like that. It really is. I know. I, you know, it's one of these things that every single time I go to teach this stuff, I literally have a moment where I'm like, wow, this feels like it does not get old to me. It, it continues to be surprising. It continues to be interesting. I, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so one of the, again, circling back to the particular studies that you've been doing recently, mm -hmm. one of the, my understanding is one of the reasons that you're focusing on attitude verbs is because they kind of lie at the intersection of language acquisition and social cognitive development in an interesting way, because ostensibly it seems like in order to understand the meaning of these attitude verbs, it relies upon uh, having an understanding of the perspective of others or having, having various kinds of social information. That's exactly right. Um, if you imagine sort of knowing, uh, or I don't know. Oh yeah, I guess what is an attitude verb? For yeah, so um, an attitude verb is a class of verbs that we use to basically refer to the contents of other people's minds. So we can say Kate thinks that it's raining, you know, Kate wants to eat a sandwich, those kinds of things. And so what you're doing there is you're having some kind of um, sort of chunk of language that gets embedded, that gets kind of put inside of this whole uh, sentence about thinking, and that thing is representing the contents of my mind. So some things that are really interesting about, about attitude verbs are that the kind of truth of that embedded clause, we call it, that kind of linguistic piece that gets stuck sort of inside of this, this thinking event, um, the truth value of that does not have to match the truth value of the whole sentence. So we can say, Kate thinks that it's raining, and that sentence can be true, even if outside it's not actually raining. That right. embedded thing, it's raining, can be false, even though the whole thing is true. Mm -hmm. So these are going to be a super hard category of words to learn for a lot of reasons. One of them is this kind of mismatching potential of the truth of the embedded clause versus the whole sentence. One of them is exactly like you said. Um, conceptually, you have to recognize that thinking is the type of event that someone might refer to in the world to, to even start to figure out, oh, that that idea is what that word links up to. Um, and that's going to be especially hard because 
we can't see people thinking. We often say there's no physical correlates to this event. Right. Um, you know, seeing people thinking is not a good indication of when thinking is happening. Thinking is happening literally all the time, and people are talking about it sometimes. Uh, but you know, hearing hearing people use the word think is not informative at all about what what it means really. Right. So if you're trying to get a baby to understand the meaning of the word chair, you can just point to the physical chair, but you can't yeah. point to the physical thinking in the exactly. world. It seems like you might need a theory of mind or something. Exactly. And so, um, you know, part of the discussion in the literature for a long time was just about do kids even have the right conceptual capacity to understand uh, a concept like thinking, um, mm-hmm. let alone learn the word. I actually am of the school of thought. So when I first got into this work, I really felt like it was um, it, that it was kind of um, directly informative about perhaps kids conceptual development in these domains as they have done more work. So I guess it has been informative about that. But I have really basically come to the point where I I feel like that concept, that concept as a possible thing that might be linked with a word has to be there all along. There are all of these really cool studies with infants, you know, 12, 15 month olds showing that they are sensitive to tracking people's beliefs, tracking people's false beliefs even. Um, And so I think that the capacity to learn that there's a word that refers to this concept of thinking is is there right from the beginning. I thought for a long time that maybe it was going to be kind of I don't know, related to this sort of theory of mind development shift that we see in kids around four. I think maybe that shift that we see in those studies um, is maybe related to kids learning of these words in some way. But I actually don't think that learning the words is indicative of the conceptual development. I think the conceptual development is there earlier. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so I want to kind of get into more details there as we get into your particular um, experiments that you've run regarding Mm -hmm. these attitude verbs. But I just have one question about methodology before we jump into that. So the experiments that you devise, uh, as you say, they're they're very creative and flexible. Yeah. Um, As you say, you draw from disciplines, including traditional language acquisition tasks, as well as creative uses of games for study Mm -hmm. design. My question is, how big of a role does the observer's paradox play in the linguistic experiments that you're doing? So as the linguist LeBove put it to quote to obtain the data most important for linguistic theory we have to observe how people speak when they are not being observed so a lot of times mm-hmm. there people aren't i think the basic idea is that people aren't going to act in an authentic manner which is the manner that you want to capture them in if they mm-hmm. know that they're being watched so you have to watch them by having them have their guard down as much as possible and the particular question I, I wanted to ask is is the observer's paradox less of a concern when it comes to linguistic experiments involving children because they're already more naturally oblivious? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I do think you're right that um, that it's going to be less of a problem for little kids uh, in the kind of way that LaBeouf talks about it um, because they are less sensitive to this kind of social information that's about, you know, putting your best self on when you're being interviewed. That kind of thing is just not not the sort of thing that they seem to be really sensitive to. I do think, though, that there's a kind of kid version of this, which is that kids that are not comfortable, kids that do not feel like they're doing something that's totally natural, give you really bad data. They get kind of clammed up. They get kind of nervous. I don't think that it's the same exact thing as, as mm-hmm. this observer's paradox that we see in adults, but I do think that the kind of atmosphere that you set up with little kids is still really important. And it's actually one of the things that I have worked 
hardest in my research life to to kind of um, cultivate because the way that I talk about this with like my undergraduate researchers is that like the kid has to feel like stuff is their idea. It's like they have to be feeling like they are driving the play that's happening, like they're having fun. Um, I think less because they will then suddenly they're not going to like adults maybe sort of, I don't know, shift into a more uh, sort of fancy register of speaking or anything like that. But they'll be like, I'm bored. I'm done. I hate right. this. Um, so, so that's where the use of games comes in. They, exactly. they don't feel like they're doing something unnatural. They're just playing a game and we're getting linguistic data from it. That's exactly that's exactly the goal. And so it's kind of always this fine balance of like wanting to keep your internal validity good, wanting to make sure that, you know, all the kids that you test, that their experience is um, is the same, that you're being consistent, but also really making sure you're being very sensitive to the individual kids and like the pace that works for them and sort of what parts of the game that they're enjoying. But but yeah, exactly for this reason of of needing to make sure that the kids are relaxed and having fun. Um, that's exactly one of the reasons why I've really moved towards doing a lot of studies that are in this kind of more game-like structure. So like for the kid, they come in, we have, you know, toys, we have stickers, we're doing, you know, this whole game that really feels like something that you might do at preschool. They don't feel like they're being asked questions. They don't feel like they're being tested on anything. Um, and that has worked really well. I really have been able to um, get kids to do these actually quite long tasks um, using this this kind of really fun method. Yeah. Right. So w- one of the uh, experiments that you devised using this game task method seeks to try to replicate the so-called think-want asymmetry. Mm-hmm. So there's this asymmetry between um, a child's under- ability to understand the attitude verb think versus want. It seems like they have an adult-like understanding of want, but they don't quite seem to understand think in a sufficient way. And uh, I guess to, to take one of the first experiments that I read, mm-hmm. um, this has been demonstrated many times, but typically my understanding is that tests of belief reports often carry what you call a heavier processing load than tests of desire reports. So in one uh, set of experiments that you devised, you tried to replicate this asymmetry by uh eliminating this heavier processing load concern. So we're going to devise an experiment where the processing load when it comes to belief reports is is identical to the processing load when it comes to desire reports. And if we can still replicate the asymmetry there, then we know that there's a genuine asymmetry and not just an asymmetry that is the resultant of these heavier processing loads. That's exactly right. I mean, I think this is kind of related to my obsession with methodology and sort of doing things in the right way that really Um, feels like it's actually tapping the stuff that we want to tap. And so exactly like you've said, one of the things people had observed for a long time about attitude verbs in the literature is like kids are really good at want. Kids are really good at references about desire. They're good at talking about what they want. They're good at, you know, tests that people have used where they're asked about someone else's desire and they have a much more difficult time with think. Um, And so, again, for a long time, people were trying to figure out, does this difficulty with think relate in any way to this kind of theory of mind um, literature that we see. And so um, this is work that I did in collaboration with my PhD advisor, Jeff Lids, and um, another faculty member at Maryland, Valentin Hackard. Um, and so what we noticed was that all of the tests with want or with, yeah, with want, um, kids are good at them, but they're always really easy. They're not asking kids to um, 
reason about complex and conflicting desires, the way that all of the tests of think are really setting up these kind of false belief tasks where you ask a kid to reason about, you know, mom thinks that Andy's in bed, but really he's playing outside, you know. Right. What does mom think? And you have kind of these two conflicting realities that you have to keep track of. Um, and in fact, usually in these false belief situations, the kid knows what the truth of the situation is. The kid knows where Andy actually is. And so you're asking the kid to kind of override their own knowledge about a situation to reason about someone else's false knowledge. And so the first thing that we tried to do was just say, OK, if we make these if we make a test with want where we put in those uh, similar kinds of difficulties, those similar kinds of um sort of processing burdens, I guess, do we see the same difficulty? Um, and so this was really the first task, I guess, that I set up that was that was really um, like a game. And so what we did was um, we basically had kind of a board, board game almost. Um, and in the center of the board, we had all of these cards with different colors. And the point of the game was that we would flip these cards. And every time we flipped a card, we would see its color. And the color meant something about an outcome in the game. So there's four different colors and four different outcomes. The outcome being someone in the game gets a sticker. And so the different options for who could get stickers are the kid could get a sticker or the puppet could get a sticker. So Froggy was our kind of classic puppet that we used for the study. Or both of you could get a sticker or nobody could get a sticker. And so what this allows us to basically do is set up a situation where Froggy, our puppet, had desires that conflict with the kid's desires. And so then we could ask something like, uh, oh, you know, does Froggy want the card to be green? If green means that only Froggy gets a sticker. And so here, like in the think task, to be able to appropriately answer about Froggy's desire, the kid has to override her own desire. She has to say, well, I don't want that. But yeah, Froggy does want that. Right. So you're increasing, again, you're making it so there's a heavier processing load when it comes to desire as well. Exactly. We're basically trying to um, use a, a test of want that's more similar to the way people have tested think that requires this kind of heavy burden of overriding your own uh, internal mental state about something. And we found three-year-olds are great at this. Three-year-olds have no difficulty at all saying, yep, Froggy wants it to be green, even though I don't. Mm -hmm. um, and so it doesn't seem to be that particular kind of difficulty that is um, making think hard for kids. Yeah. Right. And another important piece of what you just said is also the false belief part, right? My mm -hmm. understanding is that there's a lot of uh, disagreement in the literature as to what exactly it takes mm -hmm. for a child to demonstrate mastery of the belief mm -hmm. concept. Like, when do we know that they actually have mastery of the belief concept? And my understanding is that everyone agrees that in order to demonstrate that mastery, you have to be able to attribute false belief to someone. You have to be able to know when someone has a belief that conflicts with the reality in the way that you describe. That's exactly right. The reason for that is not because there's necessarily anything special about beliefs being false, but only because false beliefs are what allow us to test belief representation. So if right. I think it's raining and it's actually raining and the kid says, yes to it's raining, you don't know if they're saying yes to my belief or yes to the, the fact of it being raining. And so, um, and so, yeah, false beliefs are what allow us to be able to tell, okay, does the kid know that someone's knowledge um, is separate from reality? And so that's why people use false belief tasks as kind of the gold standard of this belief representation capacity. Right. So, so in, in the end, with, with this experiment, I think you, there's, you did three experiments here, if I'm not mistaken, but in the end, you found that uh, this asymmetry holds up, even when we increase the processing load when it comes to desire. 
That's exactly right. So the first one, that card flipping task is just about desire. I did a, another set of studies, a sort of much more um, extensive set of studies that was um, using a method that basically compared think and want directly because we said, okay, we've tried in this study to make everything that we can that we think could be difficult about the think task. We've tried to implement that in a want task, but then um, a, a sort of later version said, okay, let's test both of them under really the same exact methodological conditions. And exactly like you say, we find that when kids hear sentences with think, they're sort of lured by reality. And when kids hear sentences with want, they're perfectly happy to override um, reality. Right. So, right. So you've established that there is this think want asymmetry. And now I suppose the further question is what explains this asymmetry? And three possible explanations is it's explained by conceptual asymmetry, right? Mm -hmm. they, they develop, maybe it takes them longer to completely develop the concept of belief. Maybe they don't develop that until they have the theory of mind that they acquire at around the age of four. Mm -hmm. Another one is you can explain the asymmetry by uh, syntactic asymmetry. Mm -hmm. And then another is you can explain the asymmetry by pragmatic asymmetry. So mm -hmm. you have um, this researcher, Lewis, I believe, yep. Yep. Through, a series Lewis. through a series of experiments, Lewis argues that children's apparent difficulty with think is not conceptual nor semantic, but pragmatic. Mm -hmm. The children have access early on to adult-like representations of think and underlying belief concept, but their competence is masked by difficulty untangling what speakers intend to convey. This is a, like, I'm just directly quoting you, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but um, when using think sentence. So the idea is there, they, they have the concepts, but it's these complicating pragmatic features which explains yeah. the asymmetry. And what you go on to do is vie for the syntactic explanation and what you call the syntactic bootstrapping uh, hypothesis. Okay, so I guess the question is, what is the syntactic bootstrapping hypothesis? Then we can hone in on the experiments that you do there to demonstrate that. Yeah, uh, good. So you did such a good job of describing these kind of three different possible explanations for the asymmetry. Um, uh, and so let me let me just give you sort of a couple sentence explanation of each, and then and then we yeah. can talk about why I. Um, sort of come down on the side that I come down on. The first one is about um, conceptual development, just like you say. And this was sort of, um, I guess, yeah, this was sort of like a, a classic thing to point to in the literature. People were like, look, kids are bad at think because kids are bad at the false belief task. Kids don't have the belief concept. Since about 2005, people have shown through many, many, many studies looking at infants that kids are actually really good at tracking false beliefs um, way before they're good at passing this traditional false belief task and certainly way before they've learned words like think. So again, 12, 15 month olds, kids are 15 months old, kids are good at kind of predicting that people are going to act in accordance with their false beliefs and not being lured by reality. Um, it turns out what we had to do to get there was basically implement these more implicit tasks. So looking at things like eye gaze as opposed to asking kids to answer directly. So for me, it seems like the conceptual hypothesis does not explain the think-want asymmetry because we find tons of evidence that both reasoning about desires and reasoning about beliefs seems to be in place way earlier than four. Right. The second thing is is a kind of syntactic hypothesis. So this was a hypothesis proposed by um, Jill DeVilliers and colleagues. Jill was also my undergraduate advisor when I was at Smith. So this is sort of the school of thought that I um, came from initially thinking about how syntactic complexity might affect kids' ability to learn these different words. And so the idea here is 
Notice that the kind of sentences that we use when we talk about thinking are really complicated. So we have to say something like, you know, Kate thinks that Felix is sleeping. And now you've kind of embedded this thing that's a whole sentence. I mean, think back to this discussion that we had about recursion. It's like that's exactly the kind of verb that allows for this recursive property of language. You can put sentences, whole sentences inside of these sentences that use words like think. And so her argument was basically kids are kind of um, lured by this whole sentence being in there and they're kind of responding to that. They're not syntactically able to um, process these sentences. And she even argues that that um, that learning how to understand this kind of syntactic structure is actually what gets you the concept at all. So that like, you know, you have to be able to kind of have the type of syntax or the type of syntactic structure, um, you know, available to you that allows you to embed whole sentences before you could even conceptualize um, the kinds of things that those sentences represent. The issue with this, though, is that cross-linguistically, it doesn't hold up to me. So when we look at a language like German, this is work done by um, Josef Perner, he shows that kids who are learning a language like German, where both want and think have these this kind of syntactic property, kids are still better at the want sentences than the think sentences. So we can show that they mm-hmm. are mastering this structure before they're able to pass the false belief task or before they're able to understand think sentences. And so, again, for me, this is just inconsistent with sort of the literature cross-linguistically, that, that syntax, that learning syntax is somehow driving this development. It just seems like it's not quite the right characterization for me. Let me just make sure I understand that. So when it comes to think versus want in English, these attitude verbs have different syntactic structures, but you can look towards other languages in which their syntactic structures are equivalent and you still see this asymmetry. So it seems like that at least version of the syntactic hypothesis can't hold up because of that fact. That's right. And so um, we want to be a little careful here because this is going to be, there is going to be some overlap in the way that this syntactic hypothesis is talked about and then the way that my syntactic bootstrapping hypothesis is talked about. So um, Right, right. Because you endorse a version of the syntactic. Hypothesis. So you're not denying. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mine is my what I think is going on is also related to the syntax. It's just not saying that like, OK, you know, getting this syntactic property of what we call finiteness of having, you know, a that sentence or that clause that embeds, you know, a, a tensed sentence like complement that particular syntactic structure is is. I'm not claiming that that particular syntactic structure is what gets kids the concept the way that the a kind of pure syntactic hypothesis would would predict. Mm-hmm. We will see, though, that when we talk about what I think is going on, syntax is also important for me. So Siobhan, uh, this is Lewis et al., um, and Siobhan was a colleague of mine in graduate school. Siobhan's hypothesis is about pragmatics. So Siobhan thought that what's going on is basically something like this. When we use sentences with think, we can use them to refer to people's mental states. So I can say something like, Kate thinks that it's raining, and the point of that sentence is to convey something about what's in my head. But notice that we also use think in a way that is different from that. So we can say something like, uh, let's say I'm going to a faculty meeting, and someone says, uh, where's Anya? And then someone else said, "Uh, she's at a conference, I think. Their sentence is not really about a mental state. 
their sentence is about conveying this information that Anya is out of town. Anya is at a conference. The purpose that think is playing there is is to kind of um, proffer, is to kind of say, you know, don't, you know, illustrate some uncertainty. If this turns out not to be true, it's to say like, oh, you know, I'm I'm not 100% sure, but like probably. It's something like probably. Right. You could also even say something like, um, uh, Jack thinks she's at a conference. And in that case, again, it's really about Anya's location. But not the, a mental state. You, not about Jack's mental state, which like, who cares about? The reason that you're saying Jack thinks in that case is because you're you're kind of indicating where you got that information from. You're sort of like, okay, if this turns out not to be true, blame Jack and not me. Um, you you're can, not asserting it as an indubitable fact. Yes, yes, exactly. You're not asserting it um, as the speaker. You're, um, it, it, we call this an indirect assertion. So you're saying, you know, I'm conveying this information to you, but like, you know, it's couched in some doubt and here's where I got it from. You can get these readings really easily with say too. So like, oh, Jack said he's at a conference. You can tell that the information that's actually being conveyed here is about this embedded clause because you can reject just the embedded clause part. So if someone said, oh, Jack thinks she's at a conference, I could say, no, she's not. I just saw her at the grind this morning. Right. So I'm responding to just that embedded clause part, not the whole sentence. And so you can tell that that the conversational purpose of that whole clause is about that internal sentence. Right. But technically so, speaking, your sentence is still true, even though you were wrong about where Jack is. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so what Siobhan thinks is going on is basically that kids think initially that um, when you use these sentences with think in an experimental context, they think that you're doing this indirect assertion thing. They think that you're saying something like, it's a heart, Froggy thinks, as opposed to really and truly being about Froggy's mental state. Oh, so, they, yeah, they think it's about the actual event and not about the mental state because they're interpreting it in this indirect assertion way. And the idea is that that's a pragmatic feature. Exactly. Exactly. Verbs like think that are part of this subclass of attitude verbs, we call these representational verbs. They all have this pragmatic property of being able to be used to make indirect assertions. Adults use them that way all the time. In fact, when we look in the input, it, it appears that adults use them that way a lot more often than they use them for actual belief representation or belief reports. Mm. So the idea is kids do not have any problem tracking beliefs. They're just misinterpreting what you're saying to them and not unreasonably so, honestly, because again, we're using think in this way a lot. And so they're just assuming that you're using think in the way that truthfully, it's most likely to be used in the real world, which is to be making indirect assertions. Right. So it's not a problem. It's not like they don't have the conceptual apparatus to understand it. And it's not a fact about the syntax it's yes. just they're misinterpreting it based upon the indirect assertion stuff exactly yeah. exactly um and and critically so siobhan even argues that they're perfectly fine i mean they're fine conceptually and even that they're they're fine in terms of the acquisition of the word think that under the right circumstances they can absolutely get the the belief representation version of think, in fact, this is what a bunch of her work shows, is that when you kind of elevate the relevance of belief, when you make the story be more about someone having a false belief, as opposed to this kind of classic case where it's about someone's location, it's sort of like, of course, the kid thinks that the relevant point is about, you know, the location and not about the belief. 
why are we even talking about the belief? It seems like it's just not that important. And so one right. of the ways that she does that, that's I think sort of the most uh, accessible to understand is um, she creates stories that instead of having one person who has a false belief, she has two people with conflicting beliefs. So kind of like a traditional change of location, false belief task, someone comes in, puts an object somewhere, someone else moves it, but then you end up with two different characters, each of whom have different beliefs about the object's location. And then she finds kids do much better. Basically, they're much better able to get this belief report interpretation when there's a reason to be reporting people's beliefs. And she says it's just that most of the time in these tasks, we kind of have not set up the right type of context to to give kids reason to think we're talking about beliefs at all. And so, of course, right. they're getting this sort of indirect assertion kind of, of interpretation. Right. So you're manipulating the context in such a way to highlight the salience of the mental representation aspect of belief. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I got, so why is that false? <laughs> that's what I think is right. So here's how that relates to my work. Um, so what we do. Oh, that's not incompatible with your. No, no, no. That's what we're basically arguing. Yeah. Uh, okay. We're sort of extending that because she looked at a bunch of studies with Think doing that. Um, so also, so Siobhan and I went to grad school together. During the time that uh, both of us were there, we had this uh, NSF grant, a National Science Foundation grant, to look at attitude verb acquisition. So a lot of the work that I've done kind of connects to the work of these other people in various ways because it was all coming out of this grant. So. Um, Siobhan was the one who initially uh, proposed this uh, pragmatics hypothesis. And so then what we did was we said, okay, let's think about how this relates to our think-want asymmetry. Right. Kids are making this kind of error with think. Why isn't this error happening with want? Kids are treating them differently. Kids are making reality errors with think. Kids are not making reality errors with want. Right. And so it turns out when you look at uh, the sort of facts about these classes of attitude verbs. We see two basic classes. This is cross-linguistically true. Two basic classes of attitude verbs. The first are these representational verbs. These are verbs like think, believe, remember. And then we have what we call sort of preferential verbs. So these are verbs like want or wish or, you know, wonder, maybe hope, these kinds of things. Um, and what we see is that these verbs have different syntactic distributions. Verbs that are about representations of the world have embedded clauses that look like full sentences. These are also the same exact verbs that have this pragmatic function of being able to be used for indirect assertion. The idea here being, there's sort of like deep semantic reasons for this, but the idea here being basically that um, the fact that, that you see this kind of assertion-like sentence-like quality to the embedded clauses is kind of related to its ability to be there for the purpose of indirect assertions. It's kind of like, you know, um, Jack thinks Anya's at a conference, sort of like Anya's at a conference looks like a full sentence. And then Jack thinks Anya's at a conference is having this pragmatic function of being an assertion, but an indirect one. That's what the thinks is doing. Yeah, so a cl clarificatory question here. Yeah. Um, I was when I was reading it, I was confused as to what exactly the distinction is between a finite and a non-finite complement. Mm -hmm. My understanding is that these that representational class that you're just talking about, those kinds of verbs occur with finite complements, whereas the preferential class occurs with non-finite complements. So what exactly is that uh, distinction? That's exactly right. So the um. Uh, finiteness is about basically tense in this case. So if you say something like Jack thinks that 
Anya is at a meeting, this is there has tense. Notice that if we take a word like want, we cannot embed something that's tensed. So you can't say Jack wants Anya's at the meeting. We can say Jack wants Anya to be at the meeting, but now we have to be instead of is, and to be does not have tense on it. So finiteness is about the tense of that verb in that yeah. case. Okay, that makes so, sense. The idea here is preferentials like want or wish cannot embed sentences in English that are finite. That's That finiteness of the embedded clause is basically giving the learner a clue about it being used as an indirect assertion if you're talking about think or not being used as an indirect assertion if you're talking about want. Notice we cannot use want for this purpose. So you can't say, why is Anya late? Jack wants her to be at a conference. Just doesn't, it, you don't have that same ability to um, be conveying the, the, uh, the content of the embedded clause. So we see different syntactic distributions. These syntactic distributions are tied in a deep way to the semantic properties of these different subclasses. And the different semantic subclasses give rise to different kinds of pragmatic functions. So right. it's sort of like the, the finiteness for the kid is a clue that, oh, this is a word that we can use for indirect assertions. It looks sentency, therefore it's going to be used in a way that, that is similar to the way that sentences themselves are used. As opposed to want, the idea is they're noticing, hmm, not like a whole sentence here in the embedded clause, therefore not used in the sentency way. Right, so it's that syntactic, that, that finite complement thing that explains the fact that indirect assertion, that you're more likely to mistake an attitude verb sentence as being about a, a reality or a location yes. as opposed to a mental state. Exactly, exactly. The right. syntactic distribution is what cues kids in to it being part of a class that can be used in this way. Right, right. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 I think I'm getting it. So yeah, I guess uh, maybe drill down a little more in the experiments that you did here. Yeah. Um, where, where you use not just the words, the attitude verbs, think and want, but also hope, you brought yeah. in hope, which has both belief and desire components to it, yeah. which I thought was really interesting. So one thing I wanna just touch on for a minute first before I tell you about the experiments is how this differs from the syntactic hypothesis. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and that is as follows. So the syntactic hypothesis was really tied to this idea of the, um, of the critical thing being about um, finiteness, being about complexity, being about, that being what gets you to the concept. Our bootstrapping hypothesis is not saying that the syntax itself is what gives you access to the concept. It's saying that the syntax and the way that the syntax looks on the surface, the syntactic properties of a word, um, kind of give you, give you a clue about its underlying meaning and about its pragmatic functions. So how well, do we explain- Is it a weaker claim? Is that fair to say? I don't think it's a weaker claim. I think it's just a different claim. I think both okay. both hypotheses are saying that the syntax is important and that this, the kid is using the syntax in some kind of meaningful way. But I think that um, we're saying that the mechanisms by which the kid is utilizing the syntax differ. The purposes of the syntax for learning are different. Okay. Uh, another thing you might wonder about is like, okay, we said that the <laughs> the syntactic hypothesis is not consistent with the cross-linguistic data that we see. And so how does the bootstrapping hypothesis work with cross-linguistic data? What we think is going on here is that it's not about finiteness per se. Finiteness happens to be the relevant feature in English, but actually what it's about is this 
property of sentenciness. We call this kind of main clause complement. So whatever full sentences look like in your language. So for English speakers, this is finiteness, tense. Seeing that in an embedded clause tells you, oh, this is one of those kind of pragmatic verbs. Not seeing that in the complement, and we actually think that that's the more critical thing. If you see sentences that have embedded clauses that are not in the form of full sentences of your language, that that clues you in, oh, this is not representational, this is not used in that special pragmatic way. So that it's hearing want, wants to, wants an apple, that's cueing you into, oh, you're not the representational type, you must be about something else. So does that, so that fact holds true cross-linguistically, even though when it comes to English, the particular syntactic feature happens to be the finite complement, but That's this is exactly like when it, right. is that right? Okay. So when we look at other languages, this manifests differently. Uh, sentences look different in other languages. The kind of most straightforward example of this that I think works really nicely is if you think about romance languages. Romance languages uh, uh, make a distinction between what we call indicative and subjunctive. This is sort of like equivalent in English to something like, you know, I don't know, the grass is green versus like the grass would be green. Subjunctive is like a little bit less less um less sure about something in some way um when we see full sentences they have indicative case always or indicative properties when we see embedded sentences they can be either indicative or subjunctive subjunctive only comes as uh, as part of a complement um okay. verbs like think that are representational that have these pragmatic properties they always have embedded sentences that are indicative Verbs that are like want, that are not representational, that are preferential, they embed subjunctive. And so what the learner is doing if she's learning a language like Spanish is not looking for finiteness. We don't care about finiteness. Finiteness just, finiteness just happens to be what how that manifests in English. What the kid is looking for in that case is like, oh, here under think I have this embedded thing that's indicative, that looks like a full sentence. Therefore, I know what you do, you're an indirect assertion. So what the kid is looking for here is not a particular kind of syntactic structure specifically, um, right. but is whether or not the embedded clauses look like they could be full sentences, main clauses, whatever that looks like in her language. And if they do, that tells you representational, perhaps uh, um, going to have this property of this special pragmatic indirect assertion function. And if not, that's when you're like, oh, you're preferential. Right. Okay. And that holds up cross linguistically. So we always see representational attitude verbs embedding syntactic properties that look like main clauses and preferentials embedding things that don't look like main clauses. And so, so that's that why the that, that's that's why the cross linguistic point is not a counterexample to the syntactic bootstrapping hypothesis because you see this difference cross linguistically. It's just cashed out differently depending upon what language you're talking about. Exactly. It's not a counterexample. It's, in fact, supportive. Um, what matters is just that you're talking about syntactic properties at the right level of abstraction. So if you're talking about the specific features of English, that's not helpful. But if you're talking about what kind of things to look for in a more abstract and a more general way, then that's actually a really powerful learning tool for the kid. And that's what the syntactic bootstrapping hypothesis is. OK. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think I got the distinction between the original syntactic theory than your bootstrapping syntactic. Theirs was about a specific kind of syntactic structure giving you access to a particular kind of concept. Ours is about 
um, syntactic distribution relative to your language, giving you information about the pragmatic properties of different words and therefore causing errors in one case and no errors in the other case. Right. Okay, so then tell me about the experiments that you used to demonstrate this hypothesis. Okay, so we ran a big set of experiments. This is about to be published in language later this year. A big set of experiments where we really wanted to compare think and want directly and where we then wanted to say, okay, if we take away the word being a word that the kid knows specifically, can we see kids basically utilizing this syntactic information in an experimental setting? So it turns out it's really hard to come up with a task where you can keep everything equal, but have basically one group of kids here think sentences and another group of kids here want sentences. But that's exactly what you need to be able to kind of test um, this syntactic bootstrapping thing, this um, whether you get different interpretations based on the syntax alone. So let me tell you first about about the kind of think and want conditions. Uh -huh. What we basically did here was we set up a game where the child comes in, we sit down at a table. In front of the child, we have this box of shapes. The shapes are wooden, the shapes are hearts and stars. All of the shapes are either red or yellow. Most of the hearts are red, most of the stars are yellow, but you have a few that are kind of uh, unpredicted. So a few yellow hearts and a few red stars. Right. Then the premise of the game is that um, basically the experimenter is with the child um, in front of the box. And on the other side of the table, we have a puppet who we're playing the game with. And there's like an occluder between us so that the puppet can't see the box. We tell the kid, we're going to pull some shapes out of our box and we're going to show them to our puppet, Froggy, who we're playing with. Froggy loves when we get hearts because every time we pull a heart out of the box, Froggy gets a sticker and Froggy loves stickers. And so the kid's job is, of course, to put a sticker right on Froggy's puppet body uh, every time we pull a heart out. Kid loves it. Froggy loves it. Froggy's very dramatic. It's very fun. But sometimes, <laughs> of course, we're going to pull stars out and Froggy hates getting stars. He doesn't like them at all because yuck, yuck, no stickers. Okay, so that's how we kind of um, basically motivate Froggy having desires in the game. We also have to motivate Froggy having beliefs in the game. So the way that we've done that is as follows. Before we pull any given shape out, um, in our occluder, there's this kind of little opening that's exactly the right size for one piece of our shape to poke through. And so we're basically showing Froggy a clue about what the shape is going to be. So before we pull the shape out, we show him a clue. The point of the heart is exactly the same angle as the point of one of the stars. So you cannot tell based on the, the shape uh, that you see as this clue whether it's going to be a heart or a star. But of course, you have color that is uh, predictive. So the idea is when Froggy sees a red clue, he thinks it's going to be a heart. And when he sees a yellow clue, he thinks it's going to be a star. And in most cases it is, but there are a few counterexamples thrown in. Bingo, exactly. So most of the time when it's red, it's a heart. Most of the time when it's yellow, it's a star. And so this motivates him having both a desire. He always wants it to be a heart and not a star. And also having a belief. When it's red, he thinks it's a heart. When it's yellow, he thinks it's a star. So this allows us, as we show the child the um, the shape, we have another puppet. Um, he is an orangutan. He's boo-boo. He's very silly. Uh, and we tell the child, oh, boo-boo, he's not smart like you. He doesn't go to preschool. So, you know, he is just learning and he's really bad at games so maybe you can help him learn and the kid's like oh yeah good and so boo boo says things like oh i see how the game works froggy wants it to be a heart or froggy thinks that it's a heart and so we can ask either about what froggy wants 
which is, of course, based on shape, or what he thinks, which is, of course, based on color. Right. Notice that on every trial here, the kid has reality in front of them. They can see what the shape is. And whether we're asking about it being or whether we're asking about beliefs or desires, when there is a mismatch, the kid has to kind of override what they know. So they have to override their knowledge that it's a heart in the case that it's yellow. Like, yep, it is a heart, but he thinks it's a star. And in the case that it's a star, they have to override, oh, he wants it to be a heart, but oh, it's actually a star. And so in both cases, you're kind of, um, you know what reality is. You have to separately represent what Froggy's mental state is, either on a, a kind of a belief dimension or a desire dimension. So when Froggy can only see a piece of the shape, they, mm -hmm. Froggy can only see the color and can't discern the shape. At that point in the experiment, the child can see what shape it is? That's exactly right. So the they're confronted with reality? Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so the child always knows reality, and then they have to basically um, override reality, either to reason about his beliefs when he has a false belief, or to reason about his desires when he has a, a, an unfulfilled, a mismatching desire. Mm -hmm. And so this is sort of the idea is it's um, we're testing them in exactly the same context, and they're both requiring the child to sort of override reality in the same way. Right. And so what we see here, again, just like all the previous studies, is that kids are fantastic at saying, yep, he wants it to be a heart, even though it's actually a star. They're not lured by the shape being a star when um, he when they're asked about his desire. They know he always wants it to be a heart, even when it's not. But when you ask them about his beliefs, they do the same exact kind of error that we see in other situations. They're like, oh, he thinks it's a star because it is. They don't care about the color. They they say that he thinks it's going to be whatever it is. They're responding, again, to this kind of embedded clause as if they are consistent with the pragmatic hypothesis, as if they are assuming that you're making an indirect assertion about what the shape is. And so then they're saying, no, 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 boo-boo, that's not right. Right. So when it comes to uh, guessing Froggy's beliefs, reality gets in the way. When it yeah. comes to guessing Froggy's desires, reality doesn't get in the way. They can point to the relevant mental state. That's exactly right. Yep, yep, yep. And so right. that's what we found with this kind of initial belief versus desire, thing versus want. That's really just a replication, but it was it was sort of, um, you know, making sure that this task was going to work because it's a little bit unusual. Um, actually, my advisor was like, I don't think this is gonna work. And I was like, no, 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 like, let me try this, let me try this. And um, <laughs> it did, it, it took a little bit of um, sort of finessing of the experience. This is one of those examples where, you know, the kid really has to feel like they're driving it because it's super long and you have these long sentences and this like really fine grained information that they have to keep track of. But actually, you know, if they do the stickers and if your puppets are nice and engaging and stuff, they really are, um, you know, they did exactly as we expected them to do. So that was that was really exciting. How many kids did you do this with? And how did you get the like, I'm guessing you didn't just like find the most genius kids in the tri-state area. No. <laughs> um, so like, yeah. we have um, 24 kids that heard want only, 24 kids that heard think only. And then we wanted to really, really be sure that this was a real thing that we were getting at and that the way we were doing it was real. And so we also did a, a basically within subjects version. So we did uh, another 48 kids that heard both types of sentences in a blocked design. So kids would hear half want sentences. And then in the second half, we would do think sentences. 
Uh, and so in that case, we saw the exact same pattern. So kids do this identically, whether they are hearing uh, both types of sentences or just one type of sentences. But overall, we have about um, 100 kids that, that ran this thing quant version. The way that we get our kids, so this was work that I did mostly while I was a graduate student at the University of Maryland, and they have a very active child lab in the linguistics department there um, that basically utilizes a database um, that has been built up over many years of local families and we call and recruit and families bring their kids in. We also work with a number of preschools in that area. Um, and so while it's true that I think the kids that we tend to get in studies um, are maybe of a more middle to upper SES socioeconomic background, um, there's definitely still a, a, a sort of range within the sample that we got of different uh, sort of facts about their backgrounds. Right, right. So how does the uh, attitude verb hope, how did that come into picture here? Yeah, so um, so hope was a really interesting case. Um, hope is an interesting case sort of <laughs> semantically um, and also an interesting case to think about learning. So hope has this property that it can take both types of structures. Uh, so you can say both Froggy, you know, hopes to get a heart. This is like want, wants to get a heart. This is non-finite. And then you can also give it kind of this full sentence like uh, embedded clause. You can say Froggy hopes that it's a heart. On the surface, you might say, hey, wait a minute. This is a counterexample to this whole big deal you just made about these different distributions for, you know, two different subclasses of attitude verbs. But actually, we see that hope is really special because not only does it have this distribution, its semantics, its meaning reflect that. So hope is maybe sort of primarily about desires. It's kind of similar to want, but it has this belief component. So you cannot say, for example, uh, I hope that it's raining, but it's not, is really weird. You can't hope something that you know is false. You also can't hope something that you know is true. So I can't say, I hope that it's raining, and it is, is really weird. And so hope, um, in order to be like a, a hoping event, you have to both um, be desired by the subject of your sentence, and you also have to be consistent with the beliefs of your subject as well, but unknown. So. Right. The meaning of hope is both about is is kind of it's sort of in between these subclasses. It's both like think and it's like want. And so, it can be used with a finite and a non-finite complement, right? Exactly, exactly. And then that's reflected in, in the semantics. So um, the idea is it could actually be a great learning example for kids because the fact that you're hearing it in both types maybe clues you into the fact that it's going to have both of these components to its meaning. You're like, oh, it's not exactly like want. I also need to worry about beliefs. And I, in fact, see that reflected in the structure that it's used in. So, right. so is the idea that, um, and maybe I'm misunderstanding, but when you when you used hope in a way where it behaves like desire, mm -hmm. the kids got the same result as they did when they were exposed to the desire verb. But when you mm -hmm. used hope in a sentence in a way where it behaves like belief, they, uh, again, reality got in the way. That's exactly right. So for our purposes, um, you know, it's interesting that it has these semantic properties. We actually just kind of thought when we started using it, we thought like kids are hearing it way, way, way less, significantly less than they're hearing either of these other words. And so maybe it will kind of function for the kid as sort of like a novel verb and that we can actually manipulate in the lab the sentence structure that we um, presented to them in and then see how they respond. And exactly like you said, we find that when we give kids 
sentences with hope with that kind of non-finite structure. So when we say Froggy hopes to get a heart, they think it means something about what he wants. They think it means desire. And when you say Froggy hopes that it's a heart, now suddenly they're lured by reality. They do the same exact kind of mistake that they do with think. There's something about that, again, that finite embedded that clause which makes it which makes them more likely to interpret it as an indirect assertion exactly it's like that that finite complement is triggering this indirect assertion even for a word they don't know um and so that's what we see this is evidence that kids are in fact sensitive to the syntactic structure and that they seem to be using this to help them categorize different attitude verbs and like you know what i always come back to is sort of like thank god right because you can't observe thinking you can't observe wanting you can't observe hoping and so even if you could figure out that we have words that refer to these concepts how would you ever know the difference between them there's nothing there's nothing about their environment in a sort of um physical way that's giving you a clue about that and so it turns out actually what you use is the structure that they're used in gives you information about their meaning Right, right. Okay, so zooming out, you you run this experiment, and it seems like it supports the syntactic bootstrapping hypothesis, Mm -hmm. which explains the think-want asymmetry, which we've been talking about. Uh, A potential uh, counter-hypothesis, which you point to, is the Mm -hmm. idea that, okay, you've run all this, but it's still possible, even given everything that you demonstrated via Mm -hmm. these experiments, that um, the child finding hearing hope with a non-finite complement might be more salient because it's less common in child-directed speech. Right. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's just what they're exposed to more. And that's yeah. why they interpret it in that way. So maybe it's just a difference in input in linguistic input. So in response, you know, given everything that you've done thus far, you can't rule out that particular alternative. So in yeah. response, you devise new ex- follow up experiments to rule out that hypothesis. One of them, I know that you made up a particular attitude verb like kerchunk yep. or whatever. So maybe yep. you could just briefly describe those two experiments. Yeah. So the idea here is, um, you know, partly when we were using the word hope, our idea was, you know, kids are hearing it very rarely, but they're sort of old enough that maybe it's hard to get them to respond to the truth value of a sentence with a totally new word. I mean, we use novel words all the time with little babies, but like maybe they're old enough that that's going to be methodologically a little bit tricky. And so we thought it was kind of this perfect middle ground zone of familiar enough that they know it's a word, but unfamiliar enough that they're, um, that they are flexible in in interpretation, which it turns out they were. I do think in retrospect, I mean, one of the big things that reviewers said to us when we were, you know, submitting and when I presented this workplace is, is like, why use hope at all? If you're using it as basically a novel verb, all you do is like introduce this messiness of like, you don't know how much exposure they have. You don't know if they, I mean, clearly they don't know what it means since they interpret it differently depending on structure, but you sort of don't know what, what information they're coming to the table with and how that affects their interpretation. So follow-up study, which is what I'm running now here at William & Mary with some um, undergraduate research assistants is basically a replication of this HOPE study, um, but using a a novel verb. So we have everything pretty much the same. We've adjusted the the setup to this a little bit um, to make it a little bit more licensed to use a novel word, um, which I can tell you about in a minute, but basically the structure is the same. And then our puppet says things like, you know, uh, froggy kertunks that it's a star, froggy kertunks that it's a heart. Um, and so we don't have um, a full sample run yet. We're about a quarter of the way through running, running kids on this. Um, but what we see is something really similar to what we saw with hope. So when you give them a finite compliment, so froggy kertunks that it's a star, reality responses. They're totally lured by what's in front of them. 
When you give them a non-finite complement, they're they're looking a little bit messier. So some kids seem to be doing something desiree. Some kids seem to be a little bit more random. It's not as clear what's happening in that case, which could be because we just don't have enough kids um, in our sample yet to kind of really see what's happening, or it could be because um, there's something about hope that was um, that was sort of pushing them in that direction in that particular condition. But we definitely see different behavior across the two structures. And we definitely see finite complements luring kids to reality, triggering this indirect assertion type response. Right. Um, yeah. So, so this is underway right now? Yeah. Yep. Oh, OK. Cool. Yeah. And isn't there another one, I think, if I'm recalling correctly, that you mentioned where you kind of prime the kids by exposing them to both versions of hope beforehand? So you're not introducing a new word, yeah. but you're priming them in, in, in such a way to uh, eliminate the input problem. Yeah. So that's one of the things. This is not underway yet. I'm, I have been kind of for a couple of years, actually, sort of developing materials for this. And I do eventually want to run this. But, um, you know, I, I'm sort of just in the stages of getting my lab up and running here. I mean, we have been running kids, but it's just not um, it's just a little slower. And because that one is a longitudinal study, it takes a little more um, a little more effort to kind of set up because you have to kind of make sure you can schedule things in such a way that allows for um, you know, all of the sessions. But yeah, basically the idea is we've written this children's book that has all of these different exposures to hope and we can sort of manipulate um, the particular kind of structure that kids hear it in. So we can give it to them, you know, in a, in a finite complement biased way for one set of kids in a non-finite complement biased way to another set of kids and then look at what happens when they come into the lab. The idea here is this is getting at something about this sort of learning mechanism. When you are hearing these sentences with a um, with some particular type of syntactic structure? Are you just interpreting in the moment what that sentence means? Or are you really learning something about the meaning of the word? Like, are you hearing those sentences and being like, okay, now I'm building up evidence about what hope means based on the syntactic structures that I've gotten it in kind of in this more um, sort of long-term, bigger picture way? Um, right. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's pretty much all I had for you. I got to run in the next like ten minutes or so. All right. Uh, thank you for. I, I really found this a fascinating conversation, and this language acquisition stuff is just too cool. Just language yeah. in general. Um, yeah. So thank. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. No problem at all. Thank you for thinking of me.